Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse number 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw the light, that it was good. God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. And God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. Let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. God called the firmament heaven. The evening and the morning were the second day. God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the gathering together of the waters called these seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, the fruit, fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth grass and herb yielding seed after his kind, the tree yielding fruit, whose seed was in itself after his kind. And God saw that it was good. In the evening and the morning were the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. Let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good in the evening and the morning with the fourth day. God said, let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life and fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. And God created great whales and every living creature that moveth, which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind and every winged fowl after his kind. God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the waters in the sea, and let fowl multiply in the earth. In the evening and the morning were the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind, cattle, and the creeping thing, and beasts of the earth after his kind. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth after his kind, and cattle after their kind, and every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth after his kind. And God saw that it was good. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air, over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Last week, we began this series by looking at the first two verses and discussing this aspect of really who God is. We define God as not only that God is an eternal God, but God is the creator God, as we see in this passage of Scripture, but also God is a triune God, and I'm not going to go into that. Next week, I'm going to talk much more specifically about the intricacy of chapter number 1, especially from verses 1 through 25, and we're going to talk about verse 2 and some of the things that have been brought up to try to give a little discredit to maybe what God has done. But we're going to go walk through this. But tonight, I would like to discuss this aspect of creation versus evolution. Now, I'm going to be the first to admit to you tonight, 
I never liked science in school. How many of you are like that here today? I just, I, I didn't like it. Uh, I could have taken any other subject, but science, I just absolutely didn't like. But I found as a preacher that it's important that I be well-rounded in areas, not that I'm going to be an expert, and I'm not, I would not call myself an expert in any area, but tonight, what I'm going to try to do from a preacher's standpoint is just share with you in this message why I believe God created the heaven and the earth, and why I believe that evolution is a theory that has been brought about to basically get us away from God and to get us to trust in ourselves and humanity. And we're living in a day in so many different avenues that man is looking to himself for the solution and man is going everywhere else but is not looking to God. And how sad it is that mankind in this earth has gotten away from God. But God began everything, and Moses, with all of the knowledge of all of Egypt and all of the universities around him, made a very simple explanation in verse number one, in the beginning, God. It was simple, and yet it's so profound. So let's pray tonight as we dive into this particular sermon tonight. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to be able to share the word of God. I pray that you would guide my lips, and may I say only those things that would be pleasing to thee, and may we grab understanding tonight. If there's any doubt in our mind tonight about what it is that we believe, may tonight somehow, through this preacher that uh, just feels so ignorant in many of these things, I pray that somehow we would have understanding, and I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Now, the title of the message tonight is given precisely because as I look at it, and I think as you see it as well, there's been a battle that has been raging of creation versus evolution. The problem in our society is that we have allowed society to peg the issue as between faith and science. Tonight, what I'm really wanting to share through the, through the title is creation versus evolution, but much of society will tell you, well, this, this is a difference between faith and science. In other words, their argument out in the world is if you are a person of faith, you really probably don't hold much to science, and people of science have facts and data on their side and do not merely contain themselves with matters of simple belief. And so in the world out there, they will look at faith and, and science as two opposite ends of the spectrum. One, they'll say, is archaic and illogical. The other is scientific and intellectual. One represents backward thinking. The other is forward thinking. In the world out there, they'll say, well, the one thought is left to the churches and the sanctuaries. The other is for the classroom. And yet I want to say to you tonight that in the academic fields out there, there are very many disparaging and blanket statements that have been made about people like you and I who attend conservative, independent Baptist churches. In other words, the comments are things like this. 
If you're trained in the sciences, or if you're not trained in the sciences, you really don't know all of the things that science has put forth today. Or they'll say, if all you do is listen to your preacher or Sunday school teacher and just simply read the Bible, you're not getting the whole story. And I suppose I could continue on and on tonight and share with you the debate that goes on between faith and science. But I want to say to you tonight that as a person who has faith in Jesus Christ and who has faith in the Word of God, I've not tossed reason out the door. I look at things logically as you do. And tonight as I share this, I come first and foremost from the premise of if God's Word says it, I believe it. I remember when I was a child riding in my mom and dad's car, and my mom had this little, our glove box, it was a, it was a little metal, and there was this little magnet on there, and it said, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Now, truthfully, whether I believe it or not, if God settles, said it, that settles it as far as I'm concerned. But I want to be clear tonight that as a preacher of the Word of God, I can't say that I understand everything in this book. I don't understand how everything came about. How is it that God spoke and these things came into existence? How is it that God created all these different things? I'm not going to be able to explain it, but I'm just telling you something. When God said it in His Word, I simply rest my faith in it. But just because I have faith doesn't mean that I don't start thinking things through logically and look at what is this about creation? Does evolution make sense at all? Creationism does not raise... Um, uh, Stephen Gould, actually a, 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 a noted critic of Christianity, started talking about how Christ creationism is just in, in local parochial uh, churches and, and uh, just in the Western nation. And those of us who are smart know what is better. But I'll tell you what, Albert Einstein once wrote these words, a legitimate conflict between science and religion cannot exist Science without religion is lame. Religion without science is blind. And so tonight, that's why I share this message here of creation versus evolution. One or the other is real and valid, but both of these, that is, creation or evolution, cannot stand. And I believe you'll know, you know where I stand tonight on the idea of creation. But before I give the points tonight about creation, I want to just roll back for just a moment of where some things started. And I want to share with you about a man by the name of Darwin, Charles Darwin. Many of you may be familiar with Charles Darwin. There's been many different things that have been written about him, and I'm not going to go into his life at all tonight. But in November of 1859, Charles Darwin published a work called On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection. And he laid out his theory in detail in this particular book. The book became an instant bestseller. And as Darwin had actually feared, it set off a firestorm of controversy throughout Britain. And while there was a lot of scientists that had defended Darwin, some of the religious leaders and others began to reject his theory, 
not only because it, it contradicted the creation story in the Bible, but because it implied that life had developed due to a natural process rather than a creation of a loving God. Well, as things began to jump across the pond over the United States here, the United States at that particular time was more concerned with the civil war that was taking place. And so this publication by Charles Darwin went pretty well largely unnoticed. It wasn't until the 1870s that American leaders and thinkers of the religious circle began to really see the religious implications of Darwin's theory. In fact, there were the preachers of that day, people like D.L. Moody and uh, many others be up, uh, D, uh, a Sunday later on who began to really criticize uh, this work by Darwin because not only did it attack the aspect of creation, but this aspect of natural process here began to infiltrate other parts of society. Theologians and others not only grappled with the historical accuracy of biblical accounts, but there were controversies revolved around how it affected society and individual thought. Out of this, Marxism came, Sigmund Freud and his philosophies came, and all sorts of things flooded through. There was a man by the name of William Jennings Bryan, who was actually a, a, a populist orator, a very devout evangelical Protestant, who had run three different times for the presidential election and had lost each time. But he became concerned about the things that were going on because of Darwin's theory. Well, through America, there was this issue of trying to keep evolution out of the schools. In fact, in Tennessee in 1924 or 25. There was some legislation that was passed to make sure that uh, evolution was not taught in the schools. And the ACLU, which was fairly new at that time, actually tried to find a science teacher that would push the envelope. And they did find a man by the name of John Scopes. He began in his biology class, was substituting here and there, and began to teach evolution. And boy, this kind of brought about a whole thing. And with that came, in 1925, something called the Scopes Trial. If you look at trials today that seem to be a circus, this was the first of them. I mean, this hit the newspapers all over. Media, whatever was there, tried to cover this. It was broadcast live on the radio. And on one side was a man by the name of Clarence Darrow, who was defending Scopes, the science teacher there in the state of Tennessee. Darrow was the most famous lawyer in the country. But joining the prosecution on the other side was this William Jennings Bryan. And from the start, both sides agreed with this, that there was a greater thought in the public opinion about this and less concern about what is happening with regards to the state law. And sadly, as the trial progressed and things went along, you could see that the public opinion was, we want to be 
noted in our science books, and there was a, an undercurrent through the United States of pushing the envelope in teaching evolution. In the United States Supreme Court in the late 60s here, all of a sudden cases started showing up in this issue of evolution in the schools. And then you note through history, and it's amazing today, that in most schools today, it's just considered a fact that evolution is to be taught and it is accepted worldwide. Now, I want to tell you something here today that as you and I sit here, many of you have been educated, and I'll bet there's a lot of you that were educated that were taught creation. Some of you might have been taught a little bit about evolution, but there was God that was spoken about. It was a little bit more freely discussed as far as the Bible. But I'm telling you today that in most public schools, what's being pushed is this evolution aspect, and nothing is being stated about creation. Nothing at all. Why do you think we ought to get involved in the public schools where we can? Why do you think we ought to encourage these young people? And why are we sharing the gospel here? Is because we want them to understand what God said and what God's word is all about. And so how important it is for us to pray for our public school students. But tonight I want to just share with you four reasons why I believe in creation and when you take the creation versus evolution debate, number one, I give this, and that is, who will we believe? Who will we believe? In other words, what is your faith in? Now you say, well, preacher, I, I thought you said that faith was in the church and science dealt with the facts. No, no, you, you, you missed out on this. I want to tell you something. You and I begin with faith but science, which talks about the facts and deals with things, helps to support some of the things with regards to creation. The world has framed the argument that all you and I have is faith, and there are no facts in our society. But I want to tell you tonight, it's a battle that begins with either you'll accept God's word or you'll accept man's word. Which starting point will you choose will determine how you interpret the evidence. Now, notice the simplicity in which it states that God created the world. I look at verse number one. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. A simple fact that's stated, that's brought out. As I mentioned last week, science doesn't know anything about origins, how things began. Science can only tell you what is at that moment. But I want you to notice here what I'm accepting of the fact that 10 times in this passage, or actually nine times in this passage, the, the phrase is used, God said. Look at verse number three, and God said. Verse number six, and God said. Verse number nine, and God said. You can see it in verses 11, 14, 20, 24, 26, and 29. Now, many people sadly have said, well, you cannot have faith because it denies reason. But I want to tell you something. There are many scientists who have gone down the road and have been knowledgeable in their respective fields, yet have had a belief in God and in creation. 
You see, the world would have you to believe that if a, science is wor- a scientist is worth his salt, then he's going to matter-of-factly just accept evolution, and he doesn't have anything to do with creation. But do you realize down through the centuries there have been great scientists who have believed in God and have believed in creation? You say, who are they? Well, let me give one of them. If you've ever had surgery and did not get an infection, you'll have to give thanks to this man, Joseph Lister. This man was a big help around the time of the Civil War. He was a committed Christian who once said, I'm a believer in the fundamental doctrines of Christianity. He believed in creation. Let me give you another scientist by the name of Louis Pasteur. If you've ever had a vaccination, you can thank this man right here. He's the progenitor of modern immunology. Pasteur had a strong religious and humanitarian spirit. In fact, he firmly believed in God as the creator of all living things. From his knowledge of the gospel, it is said that Pasteur wanted to benefit mankind by having his ideas used to heal the sick. How about this name? You know this, Isaac Newton. Now, if you got on your roof tonight and you fell off, you'd find out what Isaac Newton found out, the law of gravity. Isaac Newton, in his time, was the greatest mathematician, and he laid the foundation for calculus. But Newton was a man who believed in God, a God of actions. He was creating, preserving, and governing all things according to his goodwill and pleasure. Boy, I wish we had a lot. There are scientists today like this even. Johann Kepler. Johann Kepler was a German mathematician and astronomer who discovered that the earth and planets travel about the sun in elliptical orbits. He gave three fundamental laws of planetary motion. In the early years of the 17th century, Johann Kepler argued that the universe contained thousands of mighty bodies, bodies so huge that they could be universes themselves. And he says all of these were personal tastes. Everything that God had set up were personal tastes of an omnipotent creator God. How about this man, Michael Faraday? His major contribution was in the field of electricity and magnetism. He was the first to produce an electric current from a magnetic field and invented the first electric motor. This week, if you clean your house with chlorine and ammonia, you can think of the contribution of Faraday, for he liquidified chlorine and ammonia. Faraday's life and passion for science can best be summed up in his own words. Here's what he said. I cannot doubt that a glorious discovery in natural knowledge and the wisdom and power of God in the creation is awaiting our age and that we may not only hope to see it, but even be honored to help in obtaining the victory over present ignorance and future knowledge. He was hopeful that people in his day would recognize that God created everything. How about Gregor Mendel? founded the science of genetics. All the people that are looking back into their ancestry can give a big thanks to this man. Mendel produced the paper Experiments on Planet Hybridization. He did this in 1865 as a counter to Darwin's theory of various things that he had proponed. And this is just a smart man, 
but yet he believed in creation. Blaise Pascal is the last one I'm going to share with you. Blaise was a 17th century French mathematician, a physicist, and a philosopher. He invented an early digital calculator and a syringe, among other things. And here's what he said. There's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God the Creator. You've probably heard that statement made many times. I've used it myself. I didn't know until I studied that actually came back to Blaise Pascal made that particular statement. So number one, what am I saying here today is you've got to come back to who you're going to believe. The Bible is clear from cover to cover. God created the heaven and the earth. Things didn't happen by way of evolution. We don't, we're not coming from a monkey. Things didn't kind of evolve from a blob and all, all that garbage that's brought out. But you've got to come back to who do you believe? And tonight I say to you, I believe in God. Number two, why I believe in creation is because there's evidence for a young earth. There's evidence for a young earth. Now, please don't do this right now, but I did this this week just to test it out. I got my phone, my smartphone, and I asked my phone, how old is the universe? Can anybody guess the age that I got? Yeah, you just checked your phone, didn't you? No. 4.5 billion years. 4.5 billion years. Now, we've had him here before. A creation scientist by the name of Dr. McMurtry. There's many others that are out there. But I love the way Dr. McMurtry would often say this. I've heard him say it dozens of times. He says, here's the mantra of an evolutionist. Give me more time and anything can happen. Give me more time and anything can happen. And truthfully, when I look at the scriptures, though the Bible doesn't specifically say how old the earth is, I'm a firm believer that the earth is young. In fact, I'm like most creation scientists. Uh, as a preacher, I accept the fact that I believe that our earth is probably right about 6,000 years old. Now, some of you may say maybe more like 10,000 years, but I'm telling you, it's not out in the billions as most of the earth saying that. Now, why would you say that, preacher? Why would you believe in a young earth, and why would that help support creation? Well, I want you to think about this. Notice here this picture on the screen of the moon and the earth. We read in our scripture here that on day four that God made the moon. But when you go to most museums, scientific museums, and you look at a lot of different websites and look at some of the textbooks, the claims are that uh, the moon was made in many different ways. But I want to tell you something interesting about the earth and the moon, and that is the relationship that they have with one another. The effect of gravity that is between these two causes this lunar recession. In other words, the moon is slowly slipping away from the earth. By measuring the rate, there can be a calculation made on the maximum possible amount of time that the moon has been orbiting the earth. Now, back in the 1960s and 70s, uh, the uh, Apollo lunar program allowed the scientists to measure this process with great precision. 
And over the last 40 years, here's what they've estimated. The moon's average distance has increased by roughly one and a half inches per year. Now you say, preacher, big deal. An inch and a half a year. But remember what I said that the evolutionists tell you how long is or how, how many years has the earth been around? 4.5 billion years. Well, truthfully, based on today's rate of recession, the moon would have been touching the earth about 1.5 billion years ago. Now you say, all right, so the moon and the earth are touching. What's the big deal there? Well, have you ever gone to the beach? Actually, let's just talk about the hurricane that we had and the huge tidal waves and various things that were going on. Imagine now if the earth or moon was much closer, there'd be a lot of coastal flooding. There'd be massive tides to contend with. And so it seems impossible here to take in what evolution tells you that it's billions of years because of what we know about the relationship of the moon and the earth. Let me give you another thing with regards to the uh, relationship here, and that is the sun and the earth. The sun and the earth. You know, in the order of the universe, the sun is just an ordinary, medium-sized star. Not us, it seems massive, but there are some stars out in that universe, and we'll discuss a little bit next week, that are even bigger than the sun that we have here. But what a massive thing that we have known as the sun. It's a dense mass of glowing matter, a million times the volume of the earth. Every second, four million tons of hydrogen are destroyed in explosions that start somewhere near the core because there the temperature is about 55 million degrees Fahrenheit. The energy that is there is unbelievable and that's radiated here. But it's interesting that God in his creation placed that sun for the earth exactly where he did. 93,000 miles is the distance between the earth and the sun. Or, or I'm sorry, yeah, million. 93 million miles. Thank you for that. When you look at so many zeros, you're trying to figure out, I'm looking at this for just a moment. How many zeros is this? Astronomers have estimated that if this distance were increased to 120 million miles instead of the 93 million, our planet would be a perpetual frozen Arctic. If, on the other hand, you reduce this down to 60 million miles, the distance of the sun to the earth, this place would be burning up. Is there not a great God that has put all this together? Think with me for just a moment. Look at this picture of the world map that is there. They've talked here about the sediments that have been accumulating on the sea floor. And they've been saying for billions of years these have been accumulating. But I want to tell you something here that, and, and I'm not going to go into all the scientific detail because I'm not sure I even understand it all myself. But I'm here to share with you tonight that there is evidence for a young earth to look at these sediments on the, on the earth and, and the, the erosion here of the continents. Powerful things to understand 
And why I believe in creation is because I believe God's Word. And I believe that as I look through, there's great explanation for a young earth, not the billions and billions of years that have been spoken about as far as evolution. Number three, why do I believe in creation? Because I want you to notice what is said in verse number 11. Look at this. God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, the fruit tree yielding fruit. And look at these next three words, after his kind. Look at verse number 12, right towards the end, after his kind. Look at verse number 21. Here God creates the whales and the creatures in the sea and they are bringing forth, notice, after their kind. Look at verse number 24. The living creatures that are on the earth bring forth after their kind. And then verse number 25, again, after their kind. Why do I believe in creation? Because each created thing produces after its own kind. Notice that phrase, 10 times in the scripture, after its kind. God has declared that there be no change from one kind to another. So, for instance, we've got fruit trees. If you plant an orange tree, don't expect the next year all of a sudden you're going to get an apple tree right from those seeds. What's going to be producing? Orange trees constantly. Whatever fruit trees that you are going to plant out, they're going to produce. Notice as far as the animals are concerned. Two pigs come together, what are they going to produce? Two chickens come together, what are they going to produce? The Bible is very clear. Everything produces after its kind. Now, when you get into the theory of evolution and you start talking about the word mutations begins to be thrown out. And I want you to know something that when we discuss mutations, I want you to know that despite what evolution might say, there is no such thing as an upward change. What is evolution based on? That somehow we've come from other creatures and there's been an upward change in things and somehow those other creatures came from some blob. No, the Bible says that everything that produces, produces after its kind. Again, I was reading Grady McMurtry's book, and he was talking about mutations. And he says here that in, within the word mutation is this sense of a definition of a copying error. For instance, if I took one of the pages of my notes and I brought it over to the machine in our office and I put it down on the copy machine and I copied that, the only copy that will come out will be as good as the original that I have. I never will be able to say, hmm, that copy is better than the original. You're only going to copy something as good or, as in the case of our copier right now until we get a new one, it's going to be worse than the original. And truthfully, when you look at this aspect of mutations and we think about what evolution has said, it doesn't jive with Genesis chapter 1. 
How amazing here. No new genes are ever produced. New information doesn't come inside more genes to another creation without an intelligent designer putting some new information there. But I'm here to tell you tonight that each created thing produces after its own kind. But lastly, I share with you why I believe in creation, because design calls for a designer. Design calls for a designer. Notice here this human skeleton on the screen. Isn't it amazing how the body contains 206 bones, all of them placed together just right? These bones weigh, it's estimated, only about 20 pounds, but what a marvel the body is and how it's been created. Notice the picture here of a cell. It's quite amazing what's inside an average human cell. Human cells vary in size from one one-hundredth of a millimeter to two meters long. There's about 30 trillion cells in an average human body, each of which may perform up to 10,000 different chemical functions within it. Each cell, with all of its genetic information, has one trillion bits of data contained on its DNA molecules, molecules which is equal to 100,000 coded messages. One trillion bits of information is equivalent to every letter printed inside 10 million average-sized books. One cell, and God created that. How in the world does that all of a sudden happen by chance? Picture of an eye. Notice this. Your vision accounts for 90 to 95% of all sensory perception. The eye is a fully automatic, self-focusing, non-blurring, color motion picture camera which takes instant high-resolution photos. It is said that on a moonless night, a person sitting on a mountaintop may see the light of a match from 50 miles away. The eye has more than 120 million photoreceptors which can perceive more than 1 million simultaneous impressions. It can discriminate between nearly 10 million color variations. What a marvel. God created it. Think about the ear. The human ear has 24,000 human cells which convert sound vibrations into electrical impulses. You and I can discriminate amongst more than 300,000 tones. Our ears are so sensitive, they're able to pick up sound waves with as little as 10 to the power of negative 16. The human ear can endure short-lived surges of sound more than 100 million times higher than its minimum level. Notice the heart and the blood vessels around it, how powerful. If all the blood vessels in a human body were stretched from end to end, they would encircle the earth. The blood supply contains 180 trillion red cells, 30 million white, corp, uh, uh, white blood cells, and trillions of other blood cells. The heart moves a volume of about 2,000 gallons of blood each day. In an average lifetime, the heart will pump from 800,000 to 1.6 million gallons of blood through it, which is enough to fill 208,000-gallon railroad tank cars. Pretty amazing. God made all that. 
I mean, if I just went through and just talked about every part of the body, you and I would be able to recognize that didn't come about by chance. There's not some little radioactive thing that happened and all of a sudden, boom, that all came about. And the, 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 the perfection of this, the wonder, you and I, as the psalmist said, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And boy, I don't have the adequacy at all. In fact, going through this tonight, I realize that there is so very little I know in regards to the human body, in regards to how our world works. But I do know and understand this, that God created all this. That tonight I accept by faith what God did. And I look at it with reason, and I begin, as any reasonable person would, to compare things, and I come to the conclusion that there's no way that God didn't create all this and that all of this happened by chance. How many of you tonight have a watch on? Would you raise your hand for just a minute? All right, we're going to put a watch on the screen. Imagine if I grabbed your watch tonight, and I took that watch and I put it up on stage and I stomped on it a few times and I crushed all of its parts. The various hands, all of the little mechanism inside, all the little pieces were, it was just scattered in a lot of pieces. And I took all of those pieces in a watch and I put them right on a plate and I had them there. And then I took that plate and I brought it up. And when it came down, what do you think I'd get? A bunch of pieces of a watch. And truthfully, the faith, if you will, to believe in evolution, that the intricacy of this body, that everything that God has put into motion in our universe and everything that God has created, that somehow that all just came about by chance is hard to swallow. It's hard to believe. And so therefore, when I come back to the simplicity of the book of Genesis, and I may not know who all the scientists are out there, and I may not be able to name all of the various theories that are there and be able to stand toe-to-toe with people who believe in evolution and argue all the things, but I'm telling you, I feel at home with some of the grandmothers and grandfathers who sat on their rocking chair right outside their home and had no other books to read but the Bible. And they said, it makes sense that God created this, all of it. Tonight, I accept wholeheartedly God's word by faith. May not be able to explain it. You may not be able to explain it, but I want to encourage you that the arguments that we have in regards to creation versus evolution are really, that is the root of it. You see, if you were to think today, and I'm not saying that we don't go after these things and talk about it, but it seems like we have tried to target all of the moral issues today, marriage as it's been defined immorally, and we've been looking at the gender issues and all of these things, and we're going to discuss them all, but I want to tell you what is at the root of all this, evolution. You see, if you begin to accept evolution 
What happens is you take God out of the picture and you begin to write the story as you see fit. And how important it is for us to very simply come back and say, God, I believe in you. I believe you created your word. And tonight, in our invitation, I'd like to just do this simple. Now, it might be you're wrestling with the area of evolution. Wonderful. Come up and talk to one of our personal workers and let's sit down together. Let's get you connected with somebody that can help you even better than I can. But tonight, I'd like to encourage you to do this. Many of you have grandchildren in schools where they're teaching evolution. Some of you are here tonight with children facing that. We are trying to reach out in our public schools, and, and we know that uh, in many of the classes, this is what, be, what is being taught. And so how important it is for us to really pray that we can impact these kids, whether it be in grade school, middle school, high school, or secondary education. We are being bombarded in our society today with all of this. And so in our invitation, not without, without any piano playing, I'm going to pray, and I'm just going to ask you to come. And would you pray for your young people, for our young people, that God would help us?